We've probably got about 20, 25 more to go. The parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, starting in verse 21, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but up to 70 times seven. You remember last week in Jewish tradition, uh, you had to forgive how many times? Anybody remember? Three. The rabbi said you forgive three times. After the third time, the fourth time they do it to you, you don't have to forgive. So Peter comes to Jesus and says seven times. Well, he thinks he's being generous. He's doubled it. He's added one. You know, he, he knows Jesus is a forgiving uh, God, and, and so he says seven times. And Jesus says no, 70 times seven. And then Jesus immediately goes into a parable in verse 23. Therefore... The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now last week we said if that is in silver, if it's in gold, it's, it's ridiculous. But if it's in silver, he owed him in today's money $173 million. And remember we talked about if you, if you pay it off, denarius is a day's wage. If you tried to pay that off at a, at a day's wage it would take him 200,000 years to pay that debt back. So it says, As he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. In comparison, in today's money, that's $172. It would have taken him 100 days. It was a real debt, it would have, but it was a reasonable debt. And he laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat, and he said, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him in the exact same way, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But he would not. But he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt, So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as or in the same way I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Now that is the parable... And here is the meaning, the point, the interpretation. Jesus says in verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now, as we said last week, this does not mean that you earn forgiveness from God by forgiving your fellow man. That is not, we, we know we cannot earn. Forgiveness is by grace and by grace alone. What this is telling us is that those who go around with an unforgiving heart or an unforgiving spirit, what you're doing is you're proving that you don't really know Christ on the inside. Because as we said last week, if you really know Him, if you really trust Him, you will not spurn His way of life. If you really have His heart, if you really have His Spirit, then you cannot take forgiveness on the one hand for a zillion dollar debt from God and then turn around with the other hand and not forgive a hundred dollar debt 
from your fellow man. It just doesn't work that way. So that's what it's saying, is if, if you walk around with an unforgiving heart and unforgiving spirit, it's because you don't really know him. I don't care what you say with your mouth, there's something wrong on, on the inside. Now last week, we covered this parable, and we started, and we said, it, it's really not fair. This is so important. I won't make you raise your hand this morning, but I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Is there anybody here that you've got unforgiveness towards somebody in your heart? Somebody's wronged you. Somebody's done you wrong. could have been 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It could have been 15 minutes ago, and you've got unforgiveness in your heart. Jesus says you have to forgive. If you won't forgive, then the Heavenly Father will not forgive you. So I... As I said last week, I thought it was, it just wouldn't have been right to stop with a parable that says you must forgive and go on and not talk about forgiveness, what it takes to forgive, what is forgiveness. And so last week, excuse me, we started to make some observations on forgiveness. And this is the first observation we made. What is forgiveness? What, what does forgiveness include? And this is what we came up with. And, and the reason we came up with this definition is because these all come directly from the Bible. When you feel that you've been wronged or you feel somebody close to you has been wronged, forgiveness means that you do these seven things. Number one, you don't seek revenge. Okay, that's from Romans, right out of Romans 12, 19. Number two, you don't return evil for evil. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. Beyond that, the Bible says you wish them well. That's Luke 6.28. You actually grieve when bad things happen to them. You actually want good things to happen, and you feel bad when bad things happen. That's Proverbs 24.17. You are to pray for them. That's Matthew 5.44. You are to seek reconciliation with them so far as it depends on you. That's Romans 12.18. And finally, if they get in trouble and you have the means and the opportunity, you are to come to their aid. That's Exodus 23, 4. That's what forgiveness means. Now, even as I read that definition, one question comes into my mind. Oh, by the way, as if the bar isn't high enough. Does everybody agree that's a high bar? As if that isn't high enough, I remind you of what Jesus said in verse 35. So my heavenly Father will do to you if, read those three words, from his heart. That means you've got to do those things, not just go through the actions, you've got to mean it. It's got to be real. It's got to be from your heart. Now, I don't know about you, but that is an extremely high bar to hit. To do all those seven things, to wish them well, to, to, to try to reconcile with them, to, to go out of your way if you have means and opportunity to, to, to help them. And then you've got to do all that from your heart, which means it's real. You really mean it. You're not just going through the actions. That is an extremely high bar. Now, even as I see how high that bar is, the question comes to me, and that is this. How in the world am I ever going to do that? That almost seems impossible to offer that kind of forgiveness to someone that has wronged me greatly. So this morning, we want to talk about that. How do we forgive? If you've been really hurt, if you've been really wronged, how, how do we do this? Because Jesus said, you better do it. Because if you don't, my Heavenly Father won't forgive, forgive you. Now let me say this first off. Whenever I find myself 
with a bar set so high in the Bible, it's asking me to do something. I always go back to this scripture. This is one of my go-to scriptures in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And it's His grace to me that was not without effect. No, Paul says, I worked harder than anybody else. But it wasn't me, it was the grace of God that was in me. See, I love that Paul used the word worked there. I worked, because to me, you can just about substitute anything else there that you want. You could say, Paul could say, I gave more than anybody else. But it wasn't me, it was the grace of God in me. I I loved more than anybody else, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God working in me. And I think today we can add that, that third word there. I forgave more than anybody else, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God working in me. See, the fact is none of us in our own power have the ability to really forgive the way we need to forgive. It's always the grace of God working in us and through us. But here's the thing. Grace is not a magic wand. If somebody's hurt you, you can't just sit there and wait for God to one day come and wave a magic wand over you and somehow forgiveness just appears. Too many Christians sit around just waiting for that to happen. That's not the way it works. We are expected to forgive. We are expected to aspire to forgiveness. We're expected to desire forgiveness. We're expected to work at forgiveness. But like Paul, understanding that it's only the grace of God that... In, is everybody with me? It's, it's the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, and it's the responsibility of man working together. So what are we... Even if we understand we can't do it in our own power, what are we expected to do? Okay, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Where do we start? One of my little favorite poems is, is by the, uh, John Bunyan. For those of you all know, everybody ever read Pilgrim's Progress? It's written in the 1600s by John Bunyan. He said this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly, and it gives us wings. I love that, man. See, the, the bar is so high. You've got to forgive and you've got to do it from your heart. I mean, that's almost like a miracle of flying, isn't it? It's a, to some of us, let me be honest with you, some of us have harbored unforgiveness for so long that forgiving would almost be as big a miracle as, as, as taking wings and flying because we don't even know where to start. But, but John Bunyan says you start in the Word of God. You start in the Gospel. It's the Gospel that, 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 uh, that gives us wings. So before we get to the how, we're going to go to the Word of God here in just a second. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at this a different way, Okay. What would you say is your biggest obstacle to forgiveness? Somebody's hurt you. Somebody has wronged you. What would you say is our biggest obstacle to forgiving? What stops us? Pride, okay. Want justice? Anybody else? Say again. You can't forget it. Arrogance, they'll do it again, okay? There's a lot of things that come in. I I really thought about this a lot this week because I wanted to come at this from a different way. And and it's what stops us. And 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 by the way, this is not an exhaustive list because, but for me, in my mind, there were really two things that I felt like really stopped me from from forgiving. Um, Two things that really stood out. Here's one of them. 
would you agree that one of the things that stops us from forgiving is we want everybody to know we've been hurt? See, the, the fact is, I want you to think about this for a second. If you were really to immediately forgive somebody, if you were to do what's required, in other words, don't seek revenge, don't return evil for evil, wish them well, try to reconcile, all those things we talked about, if you really do those things, do you know very few people, if anybody, would even know you've been hurt? You see, if we don't return good for evil, see, you're not moping around, your shoulders, your lip ain't stuck out. You're not on Facebook posting about, everybody with me? Because you're, you're doing all the right things. Nobody even knows you're hurt. You're, you're not a drawing attention. Look what they did to me. You're not doing any of that. And let me tell you, almost everything inside of you rebels against that. Yes or no? Everything inside of your fallen nature rebels against that. Deep down, we want people to know we've been hurt. We want them to pity us, or at the very least, we want them to sympathize with us. In fact, if we'll be honest, even when we start to forgive, we want people to know, look what I'm doing. After all, if nobody knows what I'm doing, what's the point? Yes or no? We want people to know. And so that, so we, we put off forgiveness so that we can kind of wallow in that pity. We can wallow in that sympathy. We can wallow. We put it off. Now, here's the problem. And I, I've told people this over the years. I've told myself this. The Bible says, don't go to bed angry. You know why it says that? Because if you can hold on to unforgiveness for one day, you can hold on it to it for two. And if you can hold on it for two, you can do it for ten. If you can do it for ten, you can do it for a year. And one day you look up and ten years have gone by and you've, you're still holding on to it. God says, don't do that. Get rid of it. Get, get it off of you. Because every day it just rolls by. It rolls by and it gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder to forgive. So, so this is why this is so dangerous. We want to wallow in it. We want people to know. We want people to sympathize and tell us, man, you know, pat us on the back. And we just repeat it over, everybody with me? Over and over and over. That's a huge obstacle to forgiveness. The second one I think is this, and Priscilla said it, we want justice. We want this thing to be made right. You see, in the deepest part of our fallen nature, we all believe in an eye for an eye. Especially if it's somebody else. Now when it's us, we've said this before, we forgive ourselves like that, do we not? We show mercy to ourselves like that. When we do something wrong, you always say this, well, I had good intentions. Right? When somebody else does something wrong, you say, man, you're a horrible person. Right? That's just, that's just the way we work. See, in the deepest part of our nation, we want justice, of our nature, we want justice and we want it when? Now. Right now. We want to be vindicated. We, we want to get even. Those two things to me, are just and probably all in that is arrogance and pride and all these other things but those two things really seem to be just huge obstacles to forgiveness. Now I'm going to give you this morning the key to overcoming those two obstacles. The key to overcoming those two obstacles. And and before I give it to you I'm, let me say I I'm no nearer to this than 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 you are. 
right? This, I mean, I've been meditating on this a lot the last couple of weeks, mainly about, about myself. Here's the key. They come from two scriptures. First is Philippians 4, 6. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, here's, here's the, the amazing thing. Remember, two things stop us from forgiving. Number one, we want everybody to know about it, right? We need somebody to pity us, somebody to sympathize with us, somebody to say, I understand. The other one is vengeance, right? We want, we want this thing to get paid back. Now, I want you to look at those two scriptures, and, and, and here's the thing about two, these two scriptures. I'm going to underline two wor- the word, and the word is God. You see, if you look at those scriptures, neither one of those scriptures, God doesn't downplay your need to somebody to know. And He doesn't downplay your need for revenge. What He says in both of those cases, look to me. Does everybody see that? He says, I know you need somebody to know. I, need, I know you need somebody to sympathize. I know you need somebody to understand. Come to me. Don't go to Facebook. Don't, don't go to your friend. Don't, don't start gossiping. Come to me. Tell me about it. I'll listen. Everybody see that? Same thing with vengeance. He, he understands that. He, he, he instituted this thing in us called justice. He, 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 know, he knows that. He has no problem with that. But he says, when you want justice, come to me. See, both of those things point. He said, make me your focus when these things happen to you. You see, the key, here's the key. How important and how satisfying to us is the fact that God knows and God understands that we've been hurt. Is He enough? That's a big question. Is it enough that He knows? You see, in the end, our greatest need is that God be more real to me than her or him. Let me say that again. Our greatest need, not only for forgiveness, but to be quite honest with you, our greatest need in life is that God be so real to me, so important to me, than, than anybody else in my life. It's more important that God knows than she knows. Yes, I've been hurt. Yes, I've been insulted. Yes, I've been cheated on. Whatever. He's not downplaying that. But as long as He knows, that's enough. See, my question for myself and for you guys this morning is this. A couple of questions. Is it enough that God knows our sorrow and God knows our pain? Is that enough? Can we hand our cause entirely over to Him and let Him take care of it? Do we trust Him that much? Do we love Him that much? Is He that real to us to just give it to Him and say, I'm moving on? Can we move forward treating others better than they treat us, even if it means that only God knows and nobody else? Is He that real in our lives? See, I would guess the question for, the answer for many of us is He's not. That's why I have to run to my friends. That's why I have to run and, and do all, I have to try to get Him back myself. I have to say these mean things. I have to do these things because God's not enough. See, my goal the rest of the lesson this morning is to help you see and feel from the Word that God is enough. That, that His forgiveness for you should be the impetus for you forgiving others. By the way, that's exactly what uh, Jesus said in the parable. 
The, the, remember the king said, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? In other words, God's forgiveness of us, God's love of us should be the impetus for us to forgive and to love others. And that's what we want to see this morning. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to move off our parable and we're going to look, we're going to find six things that God did for us. Six things that God did for us. Ephesians 4, 32 through 5, 2. Okay? And I want to just read that and then we'll come back and look at it. Paul is writing and he says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, I want you to just leave your, leave your Bibles open right there in Ephesians 4. In, this, in that little text right there, in those few verses, we're going to see six things that God did for you. If you're a Christian here today, six things that He did for you. Three of them He did before you were ever born, before you ever even existed. And then three of them He did in your lifetime. And the reason I want to show you this, these six things is because I'm hoping and praying that when you see these six things, that God will be elevated. That God will be so lifted up that you'll begin to see, man, He is enough. He is enough. He did those things for me. He loved me. He died for me. He made me His child. That's, I mean, that's our greatest need is for God to become more important and more important and more important and more important in our life. And I'm hoping that as we go through this, that that will happen in some of us here. And as He becomes real enough to us, and as He becomes enough to us, that will be the impetus for us to, uh, to compel us to forgive. Here's the first three. Three things that God did for us before you even existed. Number one, God loved us with a special love. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, it says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us. You see that word, as? He says, be imitators of God, because what? Because you're a child of God. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Remember what the king said? You should forgive, because what? I forgave you. you now he's saying you should love the way you've been loved. And so what I, that's what I want us to see, is how did he love us? You see, the first thing we need to see and feel about God this morning, maybe like we've never before, is the unspeakable reality of being loved by the God of the universe. Now, to feel the force of this, you need to know that I'm not merely talking about a general love that God has for, for the whole world. You see, we all know there is a way that God loves everyone, doesn't He? This love that He has provides us with Things like rain and shelter and food. Matthew 5.45 says, He causes His sun to rise on the just and the unjust. There's a way that He loves everybody. And that's great. That's a wonderful thing. But I'm not talking about that this morning. You see, the Bible teaches us that God loved me, Derek, with a different type of love. He loved me with a, with a saving love. A love that goes just beyond the offer of salvation to a, to a, to a love 
that actually bestowed salvation upon me. If you got Ephesians open, flip back over to chapter one. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you, if you are struggling with unforgiveness, and you leave here today, I'm gonna give you some homework, and it's a simple homework, and that is to read and meditate on Ephesians one. Read and meditate on Ephesians one, and I'm telling you, you'll come out of that a different person and with a different view of God. Let me read Ephesians one, four through five. It says this, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Let me tell you, before you were even born... God loved you. Not with a general love, but with a, a, a specific precious love that moved Him to decide to adopt you as His child. Go back and look at it. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That, that absolutely... Does that not blow your mind? You say, well, how, I can't understand that. I don't understand it either. But I believe it because He said it. That means before He even said, let there be light, He already was looking down through time and He saw Derek Gray and He said, I choose him. Why? Because He was anything? No, He didn't even exist. He just did it because I don't... Well, let me tell you. Look down at that to the praise of His glorious grace. Let me tell you all something. That is the highest verse in the Bible. When I, when I say that, when, if you look at other verses, how everybody talks about, everybody, we, we talk about this all the time. The Bible always interprets the Bible, yes? The Bible supports the Bible. This verse supports this verse that supports that verse. Well, if you start looking at verses supporting one another, when you get to the top, you'll find that phrase, to the praise of His glorious grace to the praise of His glorious grace. Why did God come? Why did Jesus come to this earth? Was it to seek and save that which was lost? Absolutely. But beyond that, to the praise of His glorious grace. Grace means unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Love. He loved me just because He was moved within Himself to love me. See, that's grace. And He did that before I was even born. Number, once he's done that, look at number two, Ephesians 5, 2 says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Before you were even born, before you were even a, an idea, Jesus Christ died on the cross and he died for you. See folks, we're all by nature children of wrath. We all deserve to be punished for the sins of actions and thoughts and attitudes and ideas the sins of our hands and our tongues and our eyes. But the love of God for us moved Him not only to choose us, but then to give His Son as a sacrifice in our place. You see, He died for you and me, individually and particularly. Let me give you a couple of verses, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for who? Her. Who is her? It's a church. Who's the church? It's us. He died for us. He gave Himself up for us. Isaiah 53, 4-5, Surely He has borne 
What? Our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was our sin that put Him on that cross. He died on that cross for my sin. See, what I'm, what I'm trying to get you to see this morning is it's so easy sometimes to back off and just see all this as Christ died for the world. For God so loved the world. And what I'm trying to get you to see this morning is the King loves you. The King died for you. Get away from the general and get down to you. He did that for you. This isn't some obscure theology. This is get down in the mud, pull you out, and clean you up. This is real. This is all about you. And I'm afraid some of us just are not, we don't, we're not where we were at one point. We tend to see it more general. And and I'm trying to get us down so we'll see it that He died for us. Number three, before we were even born, He chose us, He died for us, and the Bible tells us that God was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God did not look down at Jesus' death and say, man, you can't do that. Everybody's got to pay for their own sin. That's not right. No, He didn't do that at all. On the contrary, the Father looked down and was honored. Was honored that the Son would do that. That would complete His commission. Would give His life for those that, by the way, the Father had chosen thousands of years before. The Son would come and make that make that right. Three things that He did for us in our lifetime. God put us in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God... Now notice, it could have said, as God forgave you, but it doesn't. It says, as God in Christ forgave you. See, what that's telling us is that we are in Christ. It means we are in a relationship with Him. A relationship that makes us acceptable to God because He is acceptable. As long as you're joined to Christ, when God sees you, He sees Jesus. When He sees you, He sees Jesus. Now, how did we get into this relationship? 1 Corinthians 1.30 And because of Him, you're in that relationship with Jesus Christ. Because of Him, you are in that relationship with Jesus Christ. God awakened faith in our hearts and He put us into a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. By the way, if He hadn't done that, then all, the, all those three other things He did, the choosing, the dying... The being satisfied would have been in vain. The fact is, when you finally came along, He has to put you in a saving relationship. He is doing that. He did it. Nothing will stop Him from from saving you. Number two, the second thing He did uh, in our lifetime, He adopted us and made us His children. Therefore, be imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1, as beloved children. When God united you to Christ, you became with Christ a child of of the King, a Son of the Most High. By the way, this is what God had been aiming at all along. Remember Ephesians 1.5, in love He predestined us for what? Adoption. Before the foundation of the world, He said, when Derek comes along, when he's 11 years old, in Lake Wells, Florida, at a boys' camp, I'm going to put him in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And He did it. He made it happen. He did that. I didn't do that. He did that. 
You see, folks, some parents have unwanted children. But God doesn't have any unwanted children. We are all planned and we are all pursued from the foundation of the world. Let me say that again. You are, if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, it was planned before the foundation of the world and everything He's done has been in pursuit of that relationship with you. So, so you're not loved in just some impersonal way. Right? You're a child that has been sought out and adopted at great cost. The, the other day, and, and I don't want to get too far into this this morning, but the other day, and I, sometimes I, I, I watch our language as Christians that we use sometimes, and I don't know if you're like me, I'll hear people say something and it'll just, some, I'll think, why did he, why do we say that? The other day, and I'm, and by the way, I've said this same thing. I heard somebody say, that they led someone to Christ. And I, I get that. Everybody ever heard that before? But you understand, when we use language like that, it, it creates a visual picture, does it not? And the idea that the, it's like the king is over here, and you're taking somebody and say, come, let me go introduce you to... The, everybody with me? To the king? But see, when I open my Bible, I see a different picture. The king is pursuing you. You're not having to be led to the king. The king's coming after you. The king chose you. The king died for you. The king is, the king is, is left the 99 is coming after the one. Everybody with me? Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I understand the responsibility of man to, to put their faith in Jesus Christ, to repent and believe. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. But what I'm saying is don't get so caught up in that that you forget that he came after you, that he chose you, that he loved you, that he left the 99 and pursued you. Because when you feel that, we should, God should just become, I mean, just becomes glorified in our life and He becomes lifted up. And all of a sudden, all that He does for us, and I look over and I owe a $10, somebody owes me a $10 debt, that's nothing. So this is what we're trying to see here this morning. Number three, the third thing He did after He put us in a relationship with Christ, God forgave our sins. Ephesians 4.32 be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Listen, your debt is gone. Your debt is gone. So there's three things God did for us before we even existed. He loved us with a saving love. He gave Himself for us as a sacrifice. And God was satisfied with that sacrifice. And then after we, in our lifetime, God brought you to faith and put you in a saving relationship with Christ. He adopted you into His family as a child of His own. And finally, He forgave all your sins, and there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I am free of that debt. See, these, when, when John Bunyan said, far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly, and it gives us wings. You see, I could say that again, it bids us to forgive, and then it gives us the wings to do it. What are the wings? The wings are what God has done for us. That's what the king said in the parable. Shouldn't you forgive the way I forgave you? So I'm praying and I'm hoping this morning that we all will begin to understand inside of our heart and in a way that we haven't before what he has done for us. And that will be the impetus for us to forgive others. A couple other things I want to talk about real quickly. I've only got about seven or eight minutes. What is forgiveness not? We've talked about what forgiveness is. What does it not include? I'll say a couple things. Um, it's not the absence of anger at sin. See, let me tell you, just because you forgive doesn't mean you have to feel good about what was done. Everybody with me? 
It doesn't say that in the Bible anywhere. It's not, it doesn't mean you have to feel good about it. Nobody would feel good about being hurt or cheated on or whatever the case may be. You don't have to feel uh, good about it. By the way, it's also not forgetting. You, we're not like God. The Bible says God can cast our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. We're not God. We can't, we don't have that power. We can't for, we can't forget. But the fact is we can't hold on to that memory or hold on to that anger in a vindictive way. By the way, forgiveness is also not the absence of consequences. Okay? The fact is you may, we may, somebody in this church could, could steal from the church, let's say, and we could forgive them. But yet we may still turn them over to the authorities and, and, and let them be prosecuted. Everybody with me? There are consequences for sin. By the way, this is right in the Bible. Hebrews 8.12, God says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's a good thing, right? He says, I'll forget their sins. But look at Hebrews 12.6. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every sin whom He receives. You see, what, he, what it's saying here is God is no longer a judge, but He's still a daddy. And he won't, he won't hold on to those sins and judge you for them, but He'll sure enough give you a whipping for them. He'll put you in your place. He'll spank you. That's all it's saying. But So there are consequences for sin, even though there's no judgment for that sin. We see that in the story of David. We talked about this last week. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. Now he's now he's stuck. He don't know what to do. So he has her husband Uriah killed. The prophet Nathan comes to him. And he says to him in 2 Samuel 12, 9, David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Because God saw it all. And David turns around and says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, now watch this, David, the Lord has put away your sin. You're not going to die. In other words, you're forgiven. You, you've confessed. You've repented. I put it away. See, the God forgave him. The sins put away. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. But look at verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. There were consequences for that sin. The sin was forgiven. But there were consequences for that sin. Okay, So, so we see this in, in the Bible. Last thing, this question comes up a lot. I remember when I was leading the youth group, I, I, kids would ask me this question. Should I forgive someone who's not sorry? Should I forgive somebody if they're not even sorry? Let me say this. The fullest experience of forgiveness would be this. If the other person realizes they've done you wrong, and they come to you and they confess, look, I'm so sorry for what I did. And then you turn around and you forgive, you, you forgive them. You just give them, uh, freely by grace because of what Christ has done for you. You forgive them. And, and everything is patched over and it's good to go. But what if the other person doesn't even know they've hurt you? What, what if they know they don't really care? Or, or what if, what if in some way they've hurt you, but now they've died and they can't ask you forgiveness? And you're still harboring that in your heart. What do you do? I think it was Pastor Henry I first heard say this years ago. Forgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping it kills the other person. Y'all heard that? You see, forgiveness at the end is all about you. It's really all. It's not about the other person. If the other person repents, that's great. Because we can reconcile. But but in the, in the, in, in the end, forgiveness is all about you. Luke 6.27 
Jesus said this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Notice in that scenario, they're still your enemies. They still hate you, don't they? There's no repentance there at all. But he says, love them, do good to them, right? We are told how to relate to someone who's not sorry. We can kind of call it enemy love, for lack of a better term. Don't return evil for evil. Bless them, pray for them, do good to them, forgive them. All those things, that's called enemy love. But see, there's something else here about love. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says this, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, love doesn't just forgive when another person repents. Sometimes it has to endure hurts, endure those things that's been done to them, right? That, but that's, that's what love is. 1 Peter 4, 8 says this, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. See what he's saying? When you really love somebody, this, that, it just covers the sins. Those sins aren't gone. You're just covering them over. You're enduring them. You're covering them. This is what we would call enemy love. This is what we do when someone is not sorry. So this is not a case where you're going to have what's called ideal forgiveness. You could kind of call it one-sided forgiveness. But you're choosing to treat someone better than they deserve to be treated. And that's what God commands us to do. Here's the only thing about forgiveness of an unrepentant person. Keep this in mind. If the person is unrepentant, there's a difference between ideal forgiveness. Because in ideal forgiveness, I had a situation uh, uh, a couple years ago where... It, it, so the Lord was just dealing with me this week. About this. I had a situation where... Somebody did something, and I just, I forgot all about being a Christian. I just forgot about all that stuff. And I just got up in their face, and, and me and this guy just went at it, and we, and we got apart. And as I'm walking home from his house, I'm, cause he was a neighbor, as I'm walking home, the Lord just, He just got on me. What are you doing? Where did that come from? And so it took me about two days to get the courage to go back over and say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I, 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 I'm so sorry. And he graciously, by the way, he wasn't even a Christian. He graciously forgave me. And ever since that time, literally, that's been put away. And we, we, you know, we're, we're friends and, and we have dealings with each other and there's no problems or anything like that. See, that's what ideal forgiveness looks like. But when the other person won't repent, when they won't say they're sorry, they really can't have reconciliation. Everybody with me? So it's not an ideal forgiveness, but the, the, the full work of forgiveness is cut off. But the fact is, you've got peace. If you've gone and done what you're supposed to do, you've got peace in your heart. You've put that aside in, in your life, and you can m- move on. You can still lay down your ill will. You can still hand over your anger to God. You can still seek to do them good. You can do all those things, but as I said, reconciliation or restored intimacy um, would not be possible. Thomas Watson said this, We are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. You see, the fact is, when it comes to forgiveness, forgiveness sometimes, we can have somebody steal from you. Somebody could abuse a child, let's say, for example, and, and can that be forgiven? Absolutely it can. That doesn't mean you put that person back in with children. Right? Just because you, just because somebody's been forgiven doesn't mean that, oh, well, we just act like it never happened. That's not what that means. Okay? So we need to keep those in mind as well. I'll close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, to be forgiven 
is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it. But there is one thing sweeter than being forgiven, and that is to forgive. Because just as it is more blessed to give than to receive, so to forgive rises a stage higher in experience than to be forgiven. Remember what we said last week, you are never more like Jesus than when you forgive. And you're never less like Him than when you don't forgive. There's something about forgiving that is God-like. And when we are walking in forgiveness, there's just it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing because we are... Remember what we said? Romans 8.29, we are fulfilling our destiny. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, next week, um, I will not be here. I'll be out of town. You're going to have a mystery, speak, uh, mystery speaker. It's a mystery because i got no idea at this point who it is. Um, but the week that we come back, we'll be covering the parable of the guests in Luke 14, verses 1 through 11. Let's pray. Father,